Welcome to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Just ahead, it's Black History Month, and we'll talk about the largely unseen role in Black history that Black Masonic and fraternal organizations played, specifically in the Civil Rights Movement. Also, a cook-off this weekend in St. Bernard Parish, the at times unorthodox culinary experiences that will be available there and the coastal initiatives they're raising money for. But first, Louisiana's prison system is infamous for its high rates of locking people up, but that reputation didn't happen overnight. A new book, Prison Capital, explores the history of this problem and efforts to push back on it over the past 50 years. Author Lydia Palo Hobbs talked about the book with Gulf States Newsroom's Kat Stromquist. This book is about the dark and complicated history of prisons and jails in Louisiana. What drew you to this subject? So I had not really spent significant time in Louisiana or New Orleans in particular till after um, Hurricane Katrina um, and ended up getting recruited to do organizing to support kind of just reconstruction work in the city in the summer of 2006 specifically around, um, which I detail in the book a fair amount, um, the abandonment of the city jail or Orleans Parish Prison to the floodwaters by um, city and state officials, um, and the turn to kind of various kinds of law and order as a disaster response to um, Black New Orleanians trying to survive in those um, really intense time. Um, I ended up living in New Orleans um, after that for an extended period of time, and through that period, I heard the statement repeatedly stated, which is that Louisiana um, was the most incarcerated state in the world. And so through kind of my experience working with organizations, um, specifically the New Orleans chapter of the organization Critical Resistance, as well as a grassroots organization called Safe Street Strong Communities, I ended up with a lot of questions about the criminal legal system in Louisiana and how this had come to be the case. So the first part of your book relies heavily on research from The Angolite, the award-winning prison newspaper published by people incarcerated at Angola. It's a unique publication. What was it like engaging with those archives? Um, the Angolite is an incredible source. Um, I, I know of very few other sources anywhere in the country that exist. That's kind of um, news reporting by incarcerated people during the primary era of the prison boom. Um, and so between the mid-1970s and the mid-1990s, the Ingolite ran as what they called a free press, um, in that they meant that the warden um, did not have control over what was or wasn't published. Um, they had literally phones that they could call all kinds of people. Um, they could ask questions. They would do um, Freedom of Information Act requests, and they would get materials. They would, I mean, they would do real investigative reporting. And for them, the stakes of it was palpable, right? So it's never a question of kind of an abstract idea, but in the case of the Angolite, right, the people who are writing this, doing this research, doing this reporting, um, are often, you know, finding their chances at parole being stripped of them, right? So understanding what's going on, what are these mechanisms, you can like feel um, that this research has real personal stakes to it. One surprising thread in the book is the treatment of queer people in prisons, jails, and by police. What are some of those connections between queerness and mass incarceration? So there's a long history, right, pre-mass incarceration. So going back into the late 1800s, early 20th century, right, this story of kind of, quote unquote, rounding up homosexuals, right, has a long history across the country and kind of one of the ways in which um, prisons and policing work to regulate, you know, certain kinds of normative social behavior. 
as far back as I was able to find in my research, again, which begins in the 1970s, right, you have story after story, right, about kind of even as there's kind of the breaking down of racial segregation in prisons and jails, it's being coupled and intensified with often things like the creation of what they would term a homosexual cell block or the segregation of um, prisoners who are deemed queer either because they have been quote unquote caught in queer sex acts or they've just been viewed as somehow kind of non-normative. So there's a kind of another level of discipline and control happening for people who the prison deems as queer. So I end the book with a discussion of this organization breakout which organized for many years around the criminalization of queer and trans youth of color in New Orleans, particularly um, black trans girls. I find this organizing and this kind of critique a way to kind of stretch out kind of our imaginations of what everyday police violence looks like and to explicitly put these questions of gender and sexuality front and center instead of always focusing on a more narrow imagination of it always being straight young men, but to also think about the different ways police violence looks based on people's kind of gender and sexual identities as well. So much of your research covers things that are still front and center in Louisiana criminal justice calls for state police to come to New Orleans, truth in sentencing laws, controversies over pardons. Why are some of these themes so persistent? I think that there's a couple of different reasons why these themes are so persistent over time. One of them is that, you know, there has not really been a fundamental dislodging of criminalization as a response to the multitude of crises that people face. Um, there continues to be a series of crises um, facing the people of Louisiana, economic, political, ecological. So there's this way that the police system and the broader criminal legal system are seen as the constant solutions and answers to crises that are really crises around housing, around employment, around education, healthcare. I could go on and on. I also think, you know, um, the development of kind of a law and order politic going back to, you know, in a contemporary period, we can say in the 60s, I'm with Nixon, but I would argue we could even go back further into thinking about kind of the ways in which anti-Black racism animated kind of the first round of law and order politics during the rise of Jim Crow, um, the rise of things like the Black Codes um, in the South and beyond. There's this kind of, it's, it's fortified. It's a real narrative, right? It's a story. People truly, the ways in which racism positions certain people, specifically Black folks, as more criminal as a threat, right, has had real political staying power. And that there is kind of a, yeah, a class of people tied up with race and class and gender that are not kind of able to be seen as fully human, right? And I think this is really deep. Um, and I think it shows up in all kinds of ways, big and small, when people say it like that or they don't, right? Um, and I feel like it becomes then the answer is just always how do we get those people you know, sideline again, and it becomes a scapegoating and a blaming of people for all kinds of structural harms that are actually being enacted against them and broader communities, instead of thinking, oh, maybe like, instead, we could like get out of this, 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 this system is not making people safer, it's not making people more secure, it's not actually meeting people's needs, right. Um, but it is proven time and time again, to be a very powerful narrative that continues to shape kind of our ideas of what the point of governance is. That was author Lydia Palo Hobbs speaking with Kat Stromquist from the Gulf States Newsroom. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership among public radio stations in Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi.
From WRKF and WWNO, this is Louisiana Considered. Founded in 1784, the Prince Hall Masons are the oldest African-American Masonic order. Prince Hall Freemasonry is also claimed to be America's oldest civil rights organization. For a Black History Month discussion on what role the Black Masonic and fraternal organizations played in the civil rights movement, we have with us today Kathy Hambrick, Executive Director of the Amistad Research Center at Tulane University. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. We also have with us Dr. Ralph Slaughter, Grandmaster of the Louisiana Prince Hall Masons. Thank you for coming to the studio today. Thank you for having me. And our guests will be giving a talk about the role of Black, Masonic, and fraternal organizations in the civil rights movement this Saturday at St. James AME Church in New Orleans. So, Ralph, for those who weren't even aware that Black Masonic organizations even existed, could you introduce us a little bit and kind of set the context for us on the reasons behind the founding of the, the Prince Hall Masons? So Prince Hall Masonry started back in the 1700s with Prince Hall himself in Boston, Massachusetts, beginning with the American Revolutionary War. Uh, the organization spread. Ultimately, Reverend Stringer left Ohio, came to Louisiana. He was a traveling preacher, so as a preacher involved in a church in New Orleans, uh, he brought masonry to Louisiana, and from that, the rest is history. So from 1842 until this current day, there has been a significant presence of Louisiana, Prince Hall Masons in our great state. Now, Kathy, I understand the Amistad Research Center has received a wealth of records and documents, some of which are about black Freemasonry here in Louisiana. Could you tell me a little bit of what you've learned about those organizations from from these records that you've received? Well, you know, one of the things that I learned uh, as I visited the temple there uh, with Dr. Slaughter in Baton Rouge was that the Prince Hall Masons, they provided um, support and funding during the civil rights era, but they also provided leadership and financial support to churches, historically black colleges, and other civic organizations as well. Um, I didn't know that the first lieutenant governor in the United States, lieutenant governor during Reconstruction, Oscar Dunn, I did not know that he was a Prince Hall Mason. And the Prince Hall Masons have been pretty much an invisible institution. Not very many people know about their history. They don't know about the legacy of John Lewis, but also a Prince Hall Mason. And he was also a Prince Hall Mason and also a member of the St. James AME Church where our conversation in color will take place. Ralph, looking at the Prince Hall Freemasons, how would you say they turned into a civil rights organization or would they consider themselves a civil rights organization? So I don't, the organization wasn't designed to be a civil rights organization as an organization Given the leadership that was taking place by the people who headed the organization, uh, civil rights was just a way of life. It had to do with improving education, housing, transportation. Uh, the organization started out primarily in New Orleans, uh, where there were a large number of free black men. But again, if you look at the community in which they live, as they tried to improve their community, the things that they had to do ended up being civil rights issues. But it wasn't designed for that purpose. It just had to do with uh, being involved in the community. 
And so as time came forward, particularly in the 1950s, which is what everybody called the Civil Rights era, uh, Thurgood Marshall was also a Prince Hall Mason. He spent a considerable amount of time. We have pictures of him being here, raising money for a lot of the cases, because at the time he was president of the Legal Defense Fund for the NAACP. And so our organizations contributed a lot of money to uh, support the litigation of housing, public transportation, all those different cases that he was working on. There's some papers that were written by Thurgood Marshall that said were it not for the money that was put up around the country by the Prince Hall Mason, they could not have been able to fund most of those cases. And so uh, it was a way of life. And so it wasn't set out to be designed to affect civil rights. It had to do with everyday living. Now, the Prince Hall Freemasons, Kathy mentioned, are kind of a an invisible organization, she said. Would you say the Prince Hall Masons would rather not be in the limelight? What would they say about, you know, being a an unseen organization? So we're always in the limelight. We just never go around and try to say, hey, we are here. If you look at our organization, uh, particularly in Baton Rouge, and you look at, again, what happened to be civil rights matters here, uh, Dr. T.J. Jemison, pastor of the Mount Zion First Baptist Church. He was a member of the organization. A lot of people do not know outside of Baton Rouge that he actually brought Dr. Martin Luther King here. The first bus boycott was held in Baton Rouge. John G. Lewis, grandmaster of Louisiana Prince Hall Mason, it was through his leadership they managed to put up the funding for the bus boycott, organized the drivers, provided the security. Not something you run around waving a flag, but again, it just so happens that a way of life that had to happen. We're talking about the role of black Masonic and fraternal organizations in the civil rights movement with Kathy Hambrick of the MS Dodd Research Center and Ralph Slaughter of the Louisiana Prince Hall Masons. Could you outline a little bit more of the history that the Prince Hall Freemasons have specifically here in Louisiana? Well, almost in every city, country, town, the organization grew. I mean, can you imagine in the 1800s going an organization around the state traveling by uh, horse and buggy? And during some of those times, uh, it wasn't safe to travel. So trying to provide security. PBS Pinchback, one of our members, they did the cornerstone at Southern University. If you look at Gramlin, you look at Dillard, you look at Xavier, you'll find that we had a lot of our members provide the leadership to those schools. Uh, Dr. Ralph Waldo Emerson Jones, Prince Hall Mason. All throughout the leadership, Dr. Albert Dent, you'll find our organization. Uh, it was the pre-runner to what later we call the D9, the fraternities and sororities. The Divine Nine. Yes. All, all those people came out of the leadership that was provided by the Prince Hall family. And finally, Kathy, could you preview a couple of the insights that you plan to share at Saturday's talk in New Orleans? Well, the documents that we received from Dr. Slaughter and the Louisiana Prince Hall Masons include ledger books dating back to the 1800s. The Amistad is here to provide access, manuscripts, photographs, and financial ledgers for future research we have scholars, students, teachers, genealogists, documentary film producers, production studios that come to the Amistad. And this collection has over 100 years of original materials that document 
African-American civil engagement and political involvement in American history. And we want the public and our constituents to know that the Amistad is the place to come to do the research and to learn more by looking at these primary source documents. Our guest today will be giving a talk about the role of Black Masonic and fraternal organizations in the Civil Rights Movement this Saturday at St. James AME Church in New Orleans. Kathy Hambrook of the Amistad Research Center, thank you for your time today. And thank you for having me. And Dr. Ralph Slaughter, thank you for your time today. Thank you. From WRKF and WWNO, this is Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. The organization Restore the Mississippi River Delta is presenting its sixth annual cook-off for the coast this Saturday. It's organized to raise money and awareness for coastal restoration efforts. To talk with us about what's important about these projects and to give us a taste of how this culinary event helps the coast, we have with us Simone Malaz, campaign director with Restore the Mississippi River Delta. Simone, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you, Adam. Thanks for having me on. And Cook-Off for the Coast takes place this Saturday again at Dockville Farm in the community of Violet in St. Bernard Parish outside New Orleans. So, Simone, why hold a cook-off to raise money for an environmental effort? How do culinary efforts harmonize with saving the coast? Uh, Tell us the thought behind that. Yeah, look, we couldn't think of a better way to bring together all the things in, in South Louisiana that we love, and including, obviously, the coast, the community, and the culture. And food is such an important and integral part to both the coast and our culture. Uh, we can't think of a more fun way to, to celebrate those things. So the fact we have a coast being important to our culinary traditions here in southern Louisiana, it must be a slam dunk to get chefs to take part. Yeah, you know, and it's so fun, the element of having cook teams, and they are professional and competitive, and it makes it really, really fun. Um, you know, I think these people take pride in what they do, and and so they're really protective of some of their recipes and their ingredients, um, but it just makes for a really fun day. So the funds being raised at this event, are they being earmarked for some specific projects or coastal initiatives? Yeah, this is one of the best things about this event. It is free um, and it's family friendly. We want people to come out, but people wanted to know how they could give money or how they could help. And so that became something extra and fun that we did. And so any money raised goes to two different initiatives, um, two different local projects that these guys are working on. One is a partnership between Chalmette High and Nunes Community College. Um, It's a Living Shoreline project. The other is Coalition to Restore Coastal Louisiana's Oyster Shell Recycling Program. I understand in 2023, the cook-off raised more than $16,000 for the program involving Nunez Community College and the organization devoted to oyster shell recycling. Tell us a little bit about that success. Yeah, we came back and last year was a great year. And as we mentioned, you know, for a free event, raising $16,000 is awesome. Just goes to show there's a lot of pride in those community programs. Those are the same beneficiaries again this year. The Oyster Shell Recycling Program, um, both will benefit again this year. We're speaking with Simone Malaz with Restore the Mississippi River Delta. We're talking about the sixth annual cook-off for the coast and the coastal preservation efforts that it's raising money for. So tell us about that oyster shell recycling program. How does it work? 
Yeah, yeah. Great question. And so our friends at the Coalition to Restore Coastal Louisiana, or CRCL, they've really taken this program and, and turned it into an important program where they're using volunteers, they're taking oysters that otherwise would go to landfills and putting it back um, into nature, and also educating folks all along the way, from when they're eating the oysters to when they're recycling them to when the volunteers put them back out there. So it's a great program. There's other oysters shell recycling programs across the country, but this one's unique to coastal Louisiana. So if this is a free event, how exactly do you raise money? Yeah, folks just usually want to give. There's a cash bar, of course, but this is really just folks have come out and they want to say, we want to know how we can help. And so um, it's usually just a donation made right there at the event. Um, if you've never been out to, to Dockville Farm, it's a beautiful, beautiful piece of property. And so you can kind of taste a dish, walk around, listen to some music. When you get hungry again, go get some more dishes. Um, and there is the, of course, free cook teams that are showcasing... Uh, the categories at them are swims, flies, crawls. So these cook teams offer sample dishes um, that really highlight the wild game that comes from our coastal wetlands. Now, when I show up, what should I be prepared to eat? Oh, gosh, they've had some uh, wonderful things in the past. Something that stuck out from last year is there was a beautiful banh mi. Um, there was also a raccoon dish um, for those with more adventurous palates. Um, there's usually always a really wonderful duck dish. Um, there in the past have been, of course, deer and wild boar. Um, you know, you can have fish and shellfish. And there, there's always usually somebody cooking, quote, regular jambalaya. Again, that's Cook-Off for the Coast this Saturday at Dockville Farm in Violet and St. Bernard Parish. Simone Malaz with Restore the Mississippi River Delta. Thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me. I hope we see you all out on Saturday. This is Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Rest, drink water, take medicine. These are a few ways humans try to fight off germs. Other species have other tricks. An Alabama author set out to learn more in her latest children's book. WBHM's Mary Scott Hodgen spoke with the writer about what she discovered. Heather Montgomery spends a lot of time thinking about animals. So during the pandemic... It dawned on me that every species had survived a pandemic at one point. And I wondered how. That inquiry became the subject of her new book, Sick, The Twist and Turns Behind Animal Germs. It's a series of stories about how animals fight off all kinds of pathogens, how chimpanzees get rid of parasites, how alligators combat deadly bacteria. Montgomery was especially curious about... Vultures. How in the world does a vulture not vomit? I mean, literally, they're putting their head in dead, decaying, disgusting stuff. So she looked into it. Chapter 5, Buzzard Buddies. Gary Graves put on his gown, gloves, and goggles. He grabs the... The chapter, like all chapters in the book, follows the work of a real scientist. Montgomery details how he formed a hypothesis and how he looked for clues. Gary was searching for bacteria on or in vulture bodies to answer one burning question. Why don't vultures get sick? The topics in the book can get complicated, so Montgomery uses comic strips to help tell the story. She says the nitty-gritty science is the fascinating part. And I'm not really scared to, to share with kids the complex things because kids are smart. 
One of the most interesting things Montgomery learned during her research is the surprising benefit of microbes, how they can help species adapt. I never really thought about it that basically germs drive evolution. Blew my mind, really. Montgomery loves getting people excited about science. I don't want to answer it all, right? I want to leave questions because we're curious people and that's fun. That was WBHM's Mary Scott Hodgins speaking with author Heather Montgomery. That's Louisiana Considered on a Wednesday. I'm Adam Voss. Thanks for listening. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health.